0: You're listening to It's a Long Story, a podcast which digs deep into the lives and minds of some of the brilliant speakers who come to the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby.
1: People are hard to navigate. Animals aren't hard to navigate. Trees are not hard to navigate. (laughs) You know, they always accept you. What Lisa Ann
0: Gershwin does not know about jellyfish probably doesn't count, and no one gets quite as excited about gelatinous medusas as she does. Raised in California by hippie parents, her undiagnosed Asperger's syndrome marked her as an outsider during childhood, and it wasn't until she fell in love with marine biology that she started to find her way. Now an internationally recognised scientist, researcher and author, she has personally discovered 200 species of jellyfish, and counting. Despite a life that hasn't always been easy, Lisa Ann remains one of the most infectiously joyful people you're ever likely to hear. Lisa Gershwin, welcome to the Sydney Opera House, and it's a long story.
1: (laughs) Wow, can I just say? Oh my God, wow. How are you feeling about being here? Oh, I am giddy with delight, absolutely giddy with delight. Thank you for making my day, my month, my year, my century. (laughs) So, Lisa, you work with
0: Jellyfish. You're one of the world's foremost experts on Jellyfish, I have this idea for a book, which I think you should write, and it's called The Metaphors of Jellyfish. Oh, okay. (laughs) In your own writing, you've described them as the zombies of the ocean, (laughs) as invisible but as real, as poisonous vapour, golden staff to a post-operative patient, (laughs) and the angel of death. (laughs) And that's just in the introduction. I I did, didn't I? (laughs) So there are all of these, like, doom-filled, violent, deadly metaphors. (laughs) But at the same time, you absolutely love them. You marvel at them. Mm. And you find in Jellyfish great wonder and beauty.
1: Yeah. They are the beauty and the beast of my life and quite possibly of this age um you know you can't deny they sting some are lethal not only lethal but the world's most venomous animal is a jellyfish and several oh maybe about 20 species of jellyfish are not only lethal they're horrifically lethal and the ones that aren't lethal are very, very damaging. Well, not all, but many are very, very damaging to industries like the fishing industries, power, shipping. Uh, I I mean, you know, they, they cost tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars a year in damages to industries. I'm interested in that you say some are really, really
0: badly lethal. I mean, <laughs> how, how, are, how are there sort of grades of lethal? Is, it, is it Oh, not there's lethal
1: and then there's really lethal. Like, there's jellyfish lethal. Okay, so, um, you know, I mean, obviously, like, once you're dead, you're dead, right? But, like, it's the suffering that you endure before that happens. I see. <laughs> so, I mean, just to give you an idea, um, the Australian in box jellyfish, is the world's most venomous animal. And um, it it kills people in as little as two minutes. The average is four minutes. They say if you're still alive in 10 minutes, you're going to stay alive. The problem isn't the rapidness with which you die. Well, I mean, yes, that's a problem. But It's the way you die. It's that it feels like being dipped in boiling oil, and then your heart locks in a contracted state, so you're not actually resuscitatable. So that's what I mean. They are really lethal. (laughs) So this might be
0: a stupid question. No, no, it's okay. (laughs) But if... The result of being stung by a box jellyfish's death, how do we know what it feels like? Who's reporting back on that?
1: Oh, yeah, no, that's a good point. I used to be the National Marine Stinger Advisor for Surf Life Saving Australia. And in that capacity, I did a lot of research trying to find, you know, what would work the best for pain relief, sting prevention, you know, those kinds of things. And, you know, you you have to test the things that are really a problem. And so I would use small amounts of tentacle. Uh, but I would sting myself to see, does this product work? Wow, that is some job dedication. Uh, well, they're not lethal when you only use an but- inch of tentacle. But they do hurt an awful lot. And uh, I mean, I, I won't Yeah, I I won't beat around the bush. They hurt a lot. (laughs) Okay, well, good to know. So you have always been an animal lover
0: ever since you were Mm. a tiny, tiny kid. (laughs) And your parents indulged this,
1: right? (laughs) Yeah, they they may have looked back at that and thought it was a bad idea. (laughs) What were your parents like? Um, My parents were tolerant. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, let me paint a picture for you. So um, I was born in Palm Springs in the desert, but at quite a young age, before I remember, um, we moved to Valley of Enchantment. That is not a real name. That is the real town that I grew up in. Hand to my heart, I actually grew up in Valley of Enchantment. So um, my parents ran a head shop. It turns out a lot of Australians don't know what a head shop is. Um, It's a shop where they sell bongs and roach clips and things like that. (laughs) Okay. So they were kind of hippies. Um, They were hippies. Well, yeah. And so I grew up, I mean, you know, what can I say? I grew up in a hippie household, right? They didn't do drugs. We didn't have alcohol in the house. We didn't have drugs in the house. I don't think they did it out of the house either. Um, But you know, they made a living on it. You know, Valley of Enchantment was a really amazing place to grow up. You know, it was in the mountains. There were trees that smelled like vanilla. I kid you not, the Jeffrey Pines smell like vanilla. And, you know, there were lizards and snakes and salamanders and frogs and crawdads. And, I mean, you name it, there were just amazing weirdnesses of life that I could play with. And I had horses, so, you know, I had wheels basically, right? And, you know, I, I could get around and travel to places and explore. And, um, wow. What a blast. And you were given
0: great freedom by your parents to roam around and explore.
1: Yeah, I think they regretted that too. (laughs) (laughs) Why did they regret it? Oh, well, you know, there was the every now and then where the police would call my parents and say, do you have a daughter? (laughs) You know, is she missing? (laughs) I think we found her. (laughs) Right. Did you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, so I have two full sisters and a half-sister, and I think... I think they don't understand me. <laughs> now, look, I mean, they're they're shall I say normal? What I mean is neurotypical. I have Asperger's syndrome, so I think I am probably uh, well. I don't know, hard to understand. <laughs> Were you the only one in your family with Asperger's? Um, I'm positive my dad had it. I mean, he wasn't diagnosed. Um, there was no such concept you know, in his day. Um, I was diagnosed quite late in life. Um, but, But, yeah, we always knew there was something different about me, but I think nobody really knew what it was. I was palpably aware of it because pretty much everybody from, you know, sisters, family, friends, neighbors, strangers, teachers, I mean, you name it, everybody would sort of pitch in their two cents worth. And at some point, I mean, it just got so predictable. People would say, you know... There's something unusual about you. It's like, oh, thanks. Yeah, great. You know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and did you take that? Because that could be taken as a huge compliment. Yeah, it
1: wasn't usually said that way. But my third grade teacher, she saw that I was different. And she really nurtured that, I suppose. She was amazing. Mrs. Downs, she's since, you know, passed on. But she was amazing and even after I finished third grade, um, when there was you know, I mean it was a little tiny town, right? So if You know, some animal, you know, roadkill thing, something got hit by a car or whatever, Um, you know, word would spread around town, everybody knew about it. And so she would call my house and say, have Lisa come to my house, and I would go there, and we would dissect the animal, and she would teach me, oh, this is this part, and this is connected to this part, and this is what this does, and we would learn about the critters. And you'd be amazed what people run over, <laughs> you know. How amazing, though. What a wonderful yeah. and and fortunate person for you to have encountered at that age. Oh, yeah, she was amazing. And so while I was in her third grade class, that's when I discovered marine biology, or marine invertebrates, actually. The rest of it, you know, <laughs> vertebrates. <yeah>. Fish, whatever. <laughs> Fish. They're a minor phylum. Who cares about vertebrates? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, invertebrates, the weird things, the, the, the animals without backbones, you know, the the jellyfish, obviously, but, you know, the, the crabs, the prawns, the snails, the worms, you know, some of these things. The, the starfish. Oh, my God. The starfish are so weird. And, you know, some of these things are just, just, like, so strange. The word strange doesn't even come close. And, you know, to a curious mind and a, a little bit of a different sort of kid yeah, that was pretty amazing.
0: (laughs) It sounds like you identified with the invertebrates in some way, the the, the strange animals of the sea.
1: Yeah, I think I still do, actually. I think they're the ones that people overlook because they don't see their value. And they're sort of the underdog. I mean, they're the ones that do all the work, you know, really. You know, the bony upstarts, the fish, you know, they just came along late in the game and, you know. <laughs> Evolutionarily speaking. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: You said that you suspect that your father was undiagnosed Mm. with Asperger's. Did that give you
1: and he a bond? Um, Yes and no. We hated each other. Um, Well, no, he hated me. Um, I really wanted to be accepted by him. I didn't really care about most other people, but I really wanted – I needed his – acceptance and approval. And he refused to give it. I don't think he refused. That's probably not the right word. I think he was incapable of giving it. And I think he didn't like me as a person. I think he was um, scared isn't quite the right word. That makes it sound like I had knives or something. It's not that I didn't have knives. But I think he um, I think he didn't know how to control me. And so I I think he just didn't want to be around me. And I think because he had Asperger's, he probably needed some kind of feeling of, um, you know, all being right in the world or, some, you know, no surprises. Mm -hmm. And the problem was I was always a surprise, and often maybe it wasn't a good surprise. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I mean, I was in and out of trouble a lot. I was in and out of medical problems a lot, and you know. yeah, so i I think I um I think I required an abnormally large amount of love, and I don't think he had it to give. Where was your mom in all of that? Um, I think trying to make sure that my sisters didn't feel neglected. Huh.
0: Why? Because you were sucking up the attention, or? Yeah,
1: I think so. I was. I, I didn't feel that I was sucking up the attention. This. They made you me. feel that, though. Well, yeah, but 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 I only became aware later in life, actually, a couple of months ago, that I required that much love. I never knew that. Um, I mean, I was just a kid, just doing my thing, right? And but apparently, my sisters felt resentful. I, I regret that. I really do. I mean, you know, I, yeah. I, I mean, if if something I did or didn't do made any other person feel like their quality of existence was somehow less because of me being there. Well, that's horrible. <laughs> but it's a horrible way to make somebody else feel as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we're not close. Mm. Yeah. When you describe your childhood, on one hand, there's this um, you know, really idyllic kind of mm. wildness that, that you talk about. And on the other hand... There's what sounds like you know an unhappy family experience. Mm. Overall, on balance, when you look back at those sort of you know pre-high school years, do you feel good or bad?
1: <laughs> I feel biphasic. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Now, look, it's um, it, it it's very common for people with Asperger's to identify with animals more than with people because – um, if you listen to uh, Professor Tony Atwood, um, who is an Australian and, uh, you know, one of the world's experts on Asperger's. He wrote a really defining book about uh, Asperger's. He wrote a he? lot of defining books about Asperger's, yeah. And, but one in particular that um, was defining for me um, called The Complete Guide to Asperger's. And so if you were to ask Tony, he would tell you that people with Asperger's don't have a problem As soon as they close the door. Mm. It's only when you're interacting with people that it's a problem. And I get that. I really get where he's coming from. You know, people are hard to navigate. Animals aren't hard to navigate. Trees are not hard to navigate. (laughs) You know, they always accept you. Mm. (laughs) Well, Or they're honest. You know, if an animal just, like, flees from you, it's honest about it. They never – they're not two-faced. They don't lie. They don't manipulate they're honest.
0: As part of this and probably to do with Asperger's syndrome, um, you were really badly bullied at school.
1: Mm, I was, yeah. What was that like? Um, hell. It was really hell. Um, you know, I think all kids get bullied to some extent. You know, we, We get made fun of because, I don't know, you know, our our nose is too big, too small, too this, too that, whatever, or, you know, our our forehead is the wrong, I don't know, you know, whatever. Kids are always going to find something. Yeah, exactly. You know, something about our name or, I mean, you know, there's always something, right? Um, But some kids get bullied a lot worse than others. And um, I've come to understand through a lot of reading and talking to a lot of people like me um, that... People with Asperger's get bullied a lot. And I didn't know that as a kid. I didn't know that I had Asperger's, but I I was certainly aware I got bullied a lot. And you know, um yeah, I I get I get why people self-harm. Mm-hmm. It's it, when you feel like you don't belong here, I think it's normal and natural to start thinking about alternatives. And whether that's drugs to escape it, well, drugs, alcohol, whatever, to escape it, or self-harm to escape it, you know, I think we've got a lot to answer for as humanoids that are pretending to be nice and civilized. I think we've got some distance to travel there. So... Given all of this, it's not surprising
0: that before you reached the end of the 10th grade, you made a decision.
1: Mm. Tell me about that. Well, (laughs) I'm not sure you could say it was a decision. (laughs) Decision makes it So I I dropped out of school without finishing 10th grade. And um, (sighs) there was just a lot going on and... um, just wasn't into it. Hadn't been into it for a long time. Mm. I was a terrible student. Like in high school, I was terrible. Um, really going through a lot of emotional problems and um, suffering from depression. I didn't know at the time that's exactly what it was called, but I look back now and it's obvious that's what it was. Um Suffering from, you know, Asperger's. Didn't know that's what it was called, but I do now. It Just a lot of suffering, really. And and you weren't doing science at that point. No, I wasn't. So I had completely veered away from science. Science was my true love, my first true love. And it's always been my true love. Um, and, yeah, I you know, it's funny. Um, people who cared about me and wanted me to be successful, told me things like, no, don't go into marine biology. There's no jobs. And even the few jobs there are don't pay very much. And that's true, by the way. But, (laughs) you know, hang on, but dot, dot, dot. And, you know, they told me things like, oh, you know, there's a lot of school and it's really hard. The implication being you're not smart enough. Mm. You're not going to make it. You don't have the dedication. You know, the but to all that is that If you really love it, 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 it's like people who want to go into music or acting or dance or, you know, if you really, really love it, you need it like food, you know, it, it nourishes the soul. And I think to go into something else, I speak from experience here, your soul dies. Nobody told me that. You know, nobody told me that if you really, really love it, you'll find a way through the hard classes. You'll find a way to get a job that maybe you won't be a multi-bazillionaire, but you'll be happy. Mm. Nobody told me that. And so I went off and did other things, you know, I became a stockbroker and I became, you know, an accountant and I sold gold and diamond jewelry and I worked in a movie theater, a cinema, and I worked in an ice cream shop and I you know, I mean I did yeah. all these things and in, in a pet shop. I was very happy in the pet shop. I was shop, going by to way. say that sounds that <laughs> sounds like the best of
0: those options.
1: Yeah. So, um so I, I've come to see that Yes, it, it it's true, going into science is a bit of a long slog. And yes, it's true, you know, there are fewer jobs than there are people who want them. But, you know, the cream rises to the top. <laughs> and if you really, really love it, I think there's no choice. You did finally decide... To follow your dream. I did. It was by accident. Again, I I didn't see it coming. Anyway, so I applied to law schools. And while I was waiting to hear back, um, I took a class in marine biology at a local community college, which is kind of like a TAFE. And we went on a field trip, the last field trip of the semester, back to Cabrillo Marine Aquarium. And this was on the 22nd of December of 1992. And Uh, I came around a bend and there were these jellyfish in this aquarium and they were like nothing I'd ever seen before they were amazing and they were just hanging there like clouds in the sky looking graceful and beautiful and mesmerizing and I was a goner it was love at first sight and and true love lasts a lifetime can I just say (laughs) so yeah so I volunteered to help feeding and cleaning for a couple of weeks while I was waiting to hear about law school. And so I was, I was feeding and cleaning and playing with the jellies. And I discovered something that to this day I've really never resolved, but it certainly caught my attention and I thought it was amazing and I wanted to take a genetics class To learn more about it. So I went to the community college and I said, hey, I want to take genetics. And they said, we don't have genetics. You have to do it at the university. And I said, okay, how do I do that? They said, oh, (laughs) there's prerequisites. So I had to take prerequisites of the prerequisites of the prerequisites to take genetics. So I was like, okay, no, that's fine. I'm willing to do that because I really want to learn this. And so Jellyfish actually took me back to school. And I took a lot of classes, and finally, the counselor at the community college said, you know, you've got twice as many credits as you need for a bachelor's degree, and we don't award bachelor's degrees. So she said, you really need to think about going to the university. Oh, okay, sure, okay. So I went to the university, got my bachelor's degree, and then, I don't know, it was really weird, got this phone call from a professor at Berkeley and he said, I don't know why you didn't apply to me, but you should have, but we'll deal with that later. Look, I've pre-approved you for a full scholarship for the PhD, so call me ASAP. <laughs> I was like, okay. How did he know you existed? <laughs> um, so it, this crazy discovery uh, had to do with cloning. Um, I, I had given a talk about it, and I was awarded best student paper for this talk. And I think People must have talked about it because it was pretty weird. And, and I, I mean, it, let me just explain super quickly because it, it, it really is strange and amazing. And like I said, I've never resolved it to this day. Cloning itself is amazing. I mean, I'm sure I don't need to convince you of that. Cloning is amazing. Sure. Um, and, and jellyfish clone in 13 different ways. So they're amazing, right? But normally when things clone, it's a perfect replicate Of the thing that's cloned from. Mm -hmm. That's the idea of cloning, right? Genetically identical and usually uh, morphologically or structurally identical as well. Jellyfish do things differently. They do a lot of things differently. They clone differently. So when jellyfish clone, which they do naturally, when they clone, they get more and more different every time they clone. Huh. And then when they sexually reproduce, you know, sperm and eggs in the normal way, when they sexually reproduce, they go back to being normal, or uh, uh, sorry, back to looking the same again. And it's usually the other way around. So with every other thing on earth, every other living thing, sexual reproduction is where you get things that look different. Mm, You get the variants. That's right. And jellyfish do it the opposite.
0: Wow. And And no one knows why.
1: No. Have no idea why. (laughs) So I, I came up with some hypotheses, but I I reached the limit of my imagination of how to test this and figure it out. But the paper that you gave on the topic stimulated some interest yeah. to get
0: a PhD scholarship at yeah. Berkeley. And then down the track, you came to Australia in the late 1990s <laughs> as a Fulbright
1: scholar. I right? did. And that was right on the heels of this. So in my first year at Berkeley, Um, I was awarded a Fulbright to come to Australia for a year, which obviously changed my life. You ended up completing your PhD at James Cook University
0: in in Queensland. Um, And you live in Australia now full time. I do. And I'm proudly Australian. So one of the first things that you did when you got here... And I just want to, like, you know, point this out for our listeners <laughs> because you discovered a whole bunch of new jellyfish species. <laughs> I mean, that is about the most exciting thing that can happen to anyone, right? Oh,
1: yeah, it's pretty exciting. i got to be honest, yeah. <laughs> so, look, um yeah taxonomy is funny so taxonomy is the science of naming and classifying species and you know their relationships to each other and things like that and um you know Taxonomy is kind of, um, I suppose, the forgotten science, partly because a lot of people instinctively have the impression that we've discovered everything. Certainly, we must know everything. Oh, my God. There's nothing further from the truth. We have barely scratched the surface. I mean, you know, I've got a colleague who's discovered 4,000 new species of sponges, (sighs) Come on, you know. The biodiversity that we have yet to discover is simply amazing. But it's not just the discovery of the species, it's everything that goes with that. It's their biology, their ecology, their relationships, their interactions with each other, who eats whom, who shelters under whom, who builds a house for whom. You know, it's it's the whole ecosystem that goes along with every single species. And I just love being a taxonomist because I feel like I'm right there at the forefront of that basic fundamental discovery from which everything else flows.
0: This is such a career high for you, right? Um, you finished your PhD, you're doing all of this discovery, and then you get a really cool job. You get appointed Natural Sciences Curator at the Queen Victoria Museum and Art Gallery in,
1: in Launceston. Yes. This feels like it's going to be pretty sweet. It was the job of my dreams. It was absolutely, hands down, the job of my dreams. It was what I had worked all those years to get. Yes. And <laughs> how, how did how did it go? Mm. It went badly, but I'm not legally allowed to talk about it. Oh,
0: really? Okay. <laughs> okay. Because you, without going into details, um, yeah. you were stood down in 2010. Um, was. There was stuff that happened, quite a controversy. Yes. Um, you were ultimately exonerated. Yes. Um, but while that was all playing out,
1: that was a pretty bleak time. Yes, it was. Um, so with complete seriousness and no joking. I mean, I know you know some of the things we've been talking about have had a big grin on my face. This is not a grin. Um, I ended up living in a series of homeless shelters over a period of 18 months. Um, I would have been actually living under a hedge in City Park you know, for a, a certain amount of that time had it not been for some very... Very wonderful people, um, Tom and Tina McGlynn, um, who took me in. They were an older couple who had a nice quiet life. And they pretty much didn't know me from a bar of soap. And can I just say, I didn't look too good on paper at that point. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think they saw something in me and wanted to help. And they did. And they got me back on my feet. How did you meet them? Um... They had contacted me and said that they had read about some of the stuff going on. And they thought that there might be another side to it. And they wanted to hear my side. So they took me to lunch. And um, I still had their number in my phone. So I called them. And You um, called them when you were homeless? Mm, yeah. And I just said, can I come and stay for the night until I can, you know, think? I said, I just can't think right now. And, um, and (laughs) I stayed for four and a half months. (laughs) I mean, I I frequently said I should probably leave. And they said, nonsense, you're not ready. You know, your feet aren't back under you yet. You know, we said we'd help. We're helping. So look, they, um, they saved my life. And that's you know they they helped me get my book so I okay explanation so while I was in the first homeless shelter I wrote a book and um, they helped me have the confidence to submit it to a publisher and and get it accepted and they helped me um, get a foot in the door at CSRO which gave me a chance and. Um, Hopefully, I've been proving myself. What was it like Uh, being homeless? um, Look, it it was not like I would have expected. Like, I'd never thought, it for a day in my life, I'd never thought about homelessness. You know, it, it just wasn't on my radar. I didn't think about what people were like or what I would be like in that circumstance. I just never thought of it. And I got there, and... The first shelter that I was in had a range of people. Some were dangerous, most were just like me. That is, something had happened and a bit of bad luck. Uh, One woman, her house burned down and she didn't have insurance. Uh, One man had broken up with his wife and they co-owned the house and the business Mm -hmm. and so all of a sudden he's out of work and home at the same time. Um, You know, one guy was suffering from schizophrenia. He was a lovely, lovely man but finding it very hard to deal with things. Um, Nice people, really nice people and I kind of, um, for a long time, I, I didn't think of it as a homeless shelter, I thought of it as um, celebrity rehab. (laughs) So, you know. What were you rehabilitating from? I don't know. (laughs) Asperger's. Life itself. No, I don't know. Look, it was um, was just what I called it in my own mind so that I didn't have to really think about the gravity of the situation. Because, I mean, the reality is, Nobody would choose homelessness. It's, um, you know, it, even if you're in celebrity rehab, it's still rough, you know. I was really lucky. I had the book. It was my escape. Mm. And it just happened to be an escape that had a purpose and it was productive. But Stung is, I think, a really wonderful book. Aw, you just made my heart go all melty.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you write about jellyfish in the book that, and I'm quoting you here, they're an indicator that something is out of balance. They're the canaries in the coal mine, except whereas a canary dies when something's wrong, jellyfish flourish Mm. when something's wrong. What can jellyfish teach us about the
1: health of the ocean? They serve several uh, roles, I suppose. Mm -hmm. One is, yes, they are a canary in the coal mine that says hey, 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 something's wrong here. Something's out of balance. Hey, look at me. Um, But they're also often the driver of things becoming worse. But they're also the inheritor of when things go bad, they're sort of that alternative stable state. So jellyfish bloom or, you know, become swarms as a natural part of their life cycle. But there are natural swarms or natural blooms, and then there's very unnatural blooms. And there's no real dividing line between those. The blooms present the same regardless of their causes. Yeah. The difference is some blooms last a really long time and they're really, really, really bigger than they used to be. Uh, And so you can look at it and you go, whoa, something's wrong with that. You know, like um, some years back there was a bloom of sea tomatoes, one of my favorite crazy jellyfish. They're fantastic. But they're about the size and shape and color of a tomato. Mm -hmm. So we call them sea tomatoes. Anyway, they were blooming on the west coast of Australia from Derby in the far, far, far north, north of Broome, you know, way in the north, all the way down to Rottnest Island off Perth. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like I mean this that's is... millions and millions and millions and millions of jellyfish. Yes, it is. <laughs> or more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is insane. And by blooming, I don't mean a jellyfish here a jellyfish there. I mean cheek by jowl. I mean looking like you could walk across them. Like insane numbers of jellyfish. What does that do to the rest of the stuff in the ocean? Yeah, well, herein
0: lies the problem. We don't know. I mean, the other interesting thing that you write about in stung is the relationship between people and jellyfish, um yeah. as indicated by this these kind of occurrences that that you hypothesize have got to do with you know human behaviour, be it climate change or whatever. Um, but, in looking at this relationship, which is kind of out of whack, the jellyfish-human relationship. <laughs> that, that it is. <laughs> you, you put it back on us, right? You, you, I do. You throw yeah. it back in the court of the human. Um, and you write that humans need to
1: adapt <laughs>
0: to jellyfish. <laughs> well,
1: what okay, do you mean I write, by this? Yeah. So, okay. So the very last word of my book actually um yeah it's here, right let me just read the last paragraph or the like the last couple of lines or something sure thing um all right well, so I'm just passing the book over now <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so um okay so just the very last bit here uh if you are waiting for me to offer some great insight some morsel of wisdom some words of advice okay then adapt. And I took a lot of flack for that, Edwina. You wouldn't believe how much flack I took for that. People far and wide, before I published it, told me, you can't say that. That's going to discourage people. You can't say that. You know, what are people going to do if you don't give them hope? And I kind of thought, okay, but (laughs) what if this is the truth? Yeah, You know, like, what if there isn't necessarily a Hollywood ending to this. Oh, well, I mean, it depends which Hollywood, right? Yeah, <laughs> <You know>? exactly. <laughs> and it depends whether you're on the jellyfish's side yeah, or Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, that's a Hollywood ending from their point of view, you know. But, um, yeah, I mean, what if this is going to go badly for us and jellyfish are playing a role in that? And I genuinely believe that that's the case. And I don't say that easily. I mean, you know ask anybody who knows me well, and they'll all tell you, I'm sickeningly optimistic, sickeningly, revoltingly, slappably optimistic. And, but, you know, I'm not optimistic about the state of the environment. I'm really not. You know, my expertise is in jellyfish. My expertise is not in I don't know, you know, um, climate change, or plastic pollution, or, you know, blah, 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 you know, but uh, hypoxia, you know, things like that. Um, But, you know, I, I read these studies. And they look pretty credible. And, and it's not just this person or just that person. It's an overwhelming number of experts in each of these different fields saying, hey, this is really serious, guys. And, you know, our population is increasing and our consumption is increasing and our waste is increasing. And I think at some point you got to look at this and just say, hey – we're on a finite planet. So, I mean, when I think about,
0: you know, what you've been through in your life with the uh, kind of, you know, the challenge of undiagnosed Asperger's, the period of homelessness, the bullying at school, all of the dropping out of school, all of these kind of things, are you proud of yourself now?
1: Yeah, I am. And, and I don't say that lightly. Um, looking back over my life, there's been some amazing ups and some rather difficult downs. Um, Wow, what a ride. Never in all my life did I ever imagine that I would be here like this. I mean, the enormity of the privilege just, (laughs) ah, leaves me without words. (laughs) Well,
0: you've gotten here all by yourself with hard work and talent and a love of (laughs) jellyfish. Lisa Gershwin, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for having me, Edwina. You've been amazing. Lisa Ann Gershwin joined us for Antidote in 2018. Check our show notes for links to more jellyfish goodness. And next episode, we head around the world in 80 trees with Jonathan Drory. It's a Long Story is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas Programme. We're produced and edited by Susie Anderson, recorded by Joshua Craig and John Gardner, mastering and additional editing by Riley Edwards. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan, with research by Ellen O'Brien and Rachel Power. Thanks to Jacqueline Booten, Fleur Mitchell and Nerida Ross. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time.